historical context into which uh, the brain is congregation there in the lowlands are seeking to give expression to the reformed faith. One of the things you and I need to remember and appreciate is that they're surrounded. That at this particular time, at this particular juncture, they are surrounded either by Catholics, by Anabaptists, or by Lutherans. And it becomes a necessity then for them to give expression of the faith. What is it that you people believe? What is it that you folks who call yourself reformed, what is it you believe? And that's what he has been doing throughout these various articles of the Belgic Confession. And it's true here as well. You need to understand not just the broader historical context, but we need to understand the historical context out of which these articles about sacraments and baptism arise. For once again, they and the Reformed faith were indeed surrounded. They were surrounded on one side by Roman Catholics, who have a view of baptism that states, baptism is how we welcome infants into the Catholic Church, and it frees them from original sin that they were born with. It is a sacrament of regeneration. For an adult, it cleanses from actual sin. That was the Roman Catholic view about baptism. The Reformers did not agree with that. They did not agree with Rome's position on baptism. And what De Bray is doing in that article is outlining the differences, without calling them the differences, that they have. To any Roman Catholic, they were obvious as to what was taking place. So you have the Roman Catholic view. It washes away original sin. It regenerates, makes it possible for a person to be saved. But you also have that group of people that that is not so large, but it is influential and has become even increasingly influential over the years. And that is that group of people that we refer to at that particular time as the Anabaptists. These were those who were saying, if you were baptized by Rome, it's no good. You need to be rebaptized. Well, that would have been just about most of Europe at that particular time. The vast majority of citizens of Europe had been Roman Catholic at one point or another in these early 1500s and would have received that sacrament, whether they were practicing Roman Catholics or not. Yeah, the law was just flowing freely in order that the money might flow freely into Rome as well. So the Anabaptists look at it and say, no, if you were baptized by Rome, that was wrong, and you need to be rebaptized. You note the pains that the boy goes through in that article of the confession, explaining the fact: no, you don't need to be rebaptized because it's not about you. It's about God, which is what we'll come back to later on in the message as well. Besides.
Ghost are saying, the only people who can be baptized are those who have been discipled. You need to disciple the person, disciple the person, disciple them. You need to teach them, teach them, teach them. And then, then we'll allow them to be baptized. The problem that the reformers found with that is it's not biblical. Say, not biblical to disciple people and then baptize them? No. It's not the biblical pattern at all. Although we might admire, wow, look at all the time and effort they're putting into these people. That's not what happened on Pentecost, was it? Peter preaches, what must we do to be saved? Repent and be baptized. How many? 3,000. That day. That day, there was no long training classes. There wasn't months. It was just, we believe, baptizing. Ethiopian unit. What's to prevent me from being baptized? Nothing. Here's some water. Baptize it. The Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we read in Acts chapter 16 what happened. They were baptized. He and his family. What about Lydia? Paul preaches. What happens? The Spirit moves her heart. She believes in what happened. They were baptized. Paul then goes, I better stay here in Philippi. And teach you, Lydia, for a long period of time so that you get it all. Sometimes we, as the church, want to be more distinct than God. And because of the necessity of, see, you have to disciple before you can baptize, no infant. You can't have babies being baptized. So the Anabaptist threw out. Infant baptism, as the brain makes note of in that. There is a third group, and that is the Lutherans. They too are out there. Affordable source, force beginning to mount in the spiritual realm of that day. In their understanding, baptism could be administered to infants, but what it signified was God's promise of salvation, yes, but God at the moment of baptism also created faith in the child. Faith which would lead to the child's being regenerated. So at the moment of the outward sign, faith was created by God. Now, a problem, if you don't see it from the reformer's perspective, was this. Who controls then whether or not there's faith? Right? Does God control it or do I? See, if it's the water on the infant, then I'm the one in control. Uh, shall I give faith to this child or not? Well, you see, it's through the water. Ah! Okay, this one I'll give it to the person becomes the agent. Therefore, the Bray in that article states about the minister's job, yeah, he does something outwardly, but it's God that is the one who is at work inwardly. So in the midst of all of that, the Bray in your congregation, what's your view? What is baptism? Who can be baptized? 
that in true reformed theological perspective, the reformers looked at what was going on and they said, something is missing. What's missing in all of these different views is the covenant, the Old Testament. See, for the Roman Catholics, it wasn't about the word at all. It was about the power of the church. For the Anabaptists, it was... Well, we don't even pay attention to the Old Testament. We just look at the spirit age of the New Testament. In fact, we, we don't even need that portion of our Bible. For the Lutherans, there was a growing, developing animosity towards the Jewish people. And when I look back there, and want to reflect upon that. And so, the reformer said, but we can't neglect it. We have to go back to Scripture. What does Scripture teach us? So there comes our second point of our message, the biblical text. First of all, in order for us to understand what we're doing with Noah's baptism this evening, we have to see the connection. The connection between that which we just read in Genesis chapter 17, and we have to remember a couple of weeks ago where we were. Christ came and put an end to the ceremonial law. Christ came and ended that, but, as we looked at that further, not the meaning. The outward practice, yes, but not the meaning. So we don't practice the Feast of Booths anymore. But that doesn't mean we don't look at the meaning of the Feast of Booths. We don't practice the Passover anymore. But it doesn't mean we don't look at the meaning of it anymore. We don't practice the... The, the sanctification or the buying back uh, uh, of the firstborn. But we certainly look at the meaning of it. Because as we look into all those things, remember what we said, we see Christ. All of those things point us to Christ. But the outward things, Christ has fulfilled. So he leaves us with but two sacraments. Not all those feasts, not all those festivals, not all those different sacrifices that were offered for all different occasions. There are but two sacraments, and there is but one sacrifice, himself. And in the sacraments that he gives to us, they are bloodless. Even though Genesis 17 tells us about a covenant that is bloody. The point is that we don't throw away Genesis 17 because it's Old Testament. Christ fulfilled all the ceremonial law, therefore Genesis 17 has nothing to do with it. No, what we throw out of it is the blood. There's no longer the need to shed that blood because Christ has come. Now, here's where you need to make the connection. Go to Romans chapter 10, 
Keep your finger here in Genesis 17. Go to Romans chapter 10.
who were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us in its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by crying them over them in him. Let me ask you a question. God making you alive, God canceling the death. What is that? That's grace. What is Genesis 17? The covenant of grace. How does grace show itself to us? What is the picture that God gives to us of grace? Baptism. This is our connection. The circumcision of Christ comes to us because he has fulfilled the bloody demands of the law, but it connects us to that covenant of Genesis chapter 17. Now, let's think about that covenant a little bit. Genesis chapter 17. Who is involved here? Everybody that comes under as it were, the jurisdiction of Abraham. All those that Abraham is responsible for. All the males that are within his confines. Not just his family, but his servants as well. Do you think they had a clue as to what Abraham was doing that next day? No, but Abraham was doing it, so that's stood. Why? Because he's the representative. He stands as the representative of all that he has. And God is saying, all that you have, Abraham, I want you to circumcise. Well, when does this begin, God? I want you to start when they're eight days old. Now, I've mentioned before uh, the whole, uh, the whole medical thing about this and and so on, and some of it's legend, some of it's fact. But God knows what he's doing. There's a reason God picked eight days. He didn't just, you know, eight. There was a reason, purpose, that perhaps we at this point in time, it's still a shadow and we don't see it fulfilled. But starting at eight days, what are eight-day-old people? Those are infants. Who's the covenant for? Infants as well as adults. So we go to Acts chapter 2 now. From Genesis 17, that covenant, we go to Acts chapter 2. Peter is speaking upon that very famous day of Pentecost. He's putting it out there to them. Verse 38. Peter says to them, Acts chapter 2, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all that are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Oh, now it's not those under the tent of Abraham. Now we see the real purpose of this. It's all those who are under the tent of God. All those who are under the tent of the Lord. 
although who the Lord calls unto himself. And who is that? This promise is to you. You as adult men who are standing there that day listening to his sermon. It's to you. It's to your children. The Jewish men, what do you suppose they understood by children? Well, they didn't define it as being, well, my child is, well, a child, there's a difference between an infant, a baby, and a child. A child is a child. It's whoever they are responsible for. It's promises to you and to your children. And even to those that are afar off. The stranger that is within your gates. Whoever the Lord calls, what is to be done? Baptize. This is what is to happen. Do those infants get discipled first? No. Not any more so than Abraham instructed his eight days old son Isaac. Hey Isaac, let me tell you, this is why I'm doing this. Because it wasn't about the instruction. That was to follow. That's what you see taking place in the church of Acts, of Acts chapter 2. They baptize, then what do they do? Then they teach, then they fellowship. When they meet together, they pray. And the disciples begin. See, this is about the covenant. Now, it's Luke who's writing to us Acts. It's Luke who records the event in Luke chapter 18. I want you to go back to that. Luke chapter 18. Verse 15. Luke, a doctor. Pretty precise. Now they were bringing even infants to him. These weren't children who were able to walk. These weren't children who were saying, I want to go see Jesus. These were parents who were bringing their infants to Jesus. The disciples, like the Anabaptists, said, no way. No way. Jesus says, no, yes way, bring them, for to such belongs the kingdom. In other words, if you keep children from me, remember what did Paul say in Romans and in Colossians, is coming to Christ by baptism. This is the sign of it. If you keep children from that, then you're keeping children from the kingdom. Let them come. He brought them and blessed them. See, this is what the reformers are doing. They're looking deep into Scripture. They're not looking at the practices of the church. They're not looking at some practices.
problems in the church and overreacting to the problem in the church. They're not looking at the hypocrisy of the Roman Catholic Church, so they swing the pendulum way out of whack just because that's what they think needs to be done. They dig into the Word. They dig into Scripture. And they see the fact that, yes, Christ came as the one who fulfilled the law and its bloody demands. But that doesn't mean that the covenant isn't still there. And that covenant is now there in Christ. You remember the horrible demand of Genesis 17? It's a horrible demand that God makes. Did you catch it? You have to follow me. Well, how good is Abraham at doing that? Not very good. But there was one who came. He's here. One who came, who kept covenant, who fulfilled all those demands. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, who has fulfilled the demands of the covenant. So what? It's not up to me. It's already been fulfilled in Christ. He is the end of the law. He is our righteousness. So as the Reformers understood baptism, they looked at it and said, look, what baptism is, is a confirmation. It's a confirmation of covenant. It's a sign. It's a sign from God. It's a picture. Like water washes away dirt. It's the picture of what the Holy Spirit does to the heart of a sinner. It's not the act of regeneration. It's not God doing it at that moment. We in the Reformed faith have never held to some sort of baptismal regeneration. It's not up to us. This is a sign from God. It's a picture of what God does in His Holy Spirit. It's a promise that God is making in that regard. It's visible, just like circumcision was a visible sign. But notice, it was hidden. I think most men would agree with me. You don't go around going, hey, let me show you my circumcision. Right? It's hidden. Does anybody see that water from your baptism? Does anybody see that water anymore? No. But did you see it on Noah? He saw it there. We have to keep reminding ourselves, my friends, is that it's there. It's always there. That water, that baptism, that visible sign is always there. That sign from God. It's not our sign to God. It's not what we're doing to Him. It's what God is giving to us. in Christ to you and to your children and to all that are a fire. As many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. That baptism you see, as, as the Bray put it, is not only a sign, it's also a seal. 
this is God's act. I'll emphasize it again. We, we have this growing thing, particularly within those Anabaptist-type churches of dedicating their children to God, and sometimes you'll hear, well, it's just like your baptism. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. Baptism is all about God. It's God's son. A dedication is what I do. It's a man-centered event. I often like to remind those people, I say, you know, I don't read too often of dedications in the scriptures, but the one that kind of stands out in my mind is Samuel. It's kind of interesting that you're going to drop your kid off when he's three years old at the church doorstep and just leave him there for the rest of his life. Well, that isn't what I'm going to do. So what kind of dedication is it? What kind of half-hearted thing is this? A scriptural dedication is fully, completely. Here he is, Lord. Well, we don't mean to do that. Well, then what are you doing? Well, we're coming up with it. Oh, that's a man-made thing. That's a man-made tradition. Baptism is a God thing. That's what makes this moment so amazing, so awesome, because it is a God thing. God is coming. God is giving his sign. God is giving the seal of his promise. We may forget the water, but God never does. God never does. He always remembers the promise that he has made. To pour out this spirit of grace upon our hearts and upon even the hearts of our children, that they might come to faith. For without the pouring out of that spirit, they'll never know Christ. This is God's promise. This is his seal. This is what they celebrate. Was there a responsibility? Yes. Abraham, do this act. And Abraham did so. The father said, son, you need to do this thing. And the son did so. And the son said, Go ye into all the world and baptize them. And what we saw this evening was obedience to that command. This is what, what we saw. Saw Taylor and Kelly stand. We saw them come forward. They allowed God to place his sign and his seal upon their child. Just as Abraham took the flint gun. When Isaac is eight days old, he places a sign and a seal upon Isaac. This is an act of obedience. 
Amen. 